0: If you have your Bibles, please open them with me to John chapter 8. And if you're able to do that, that already lets you know something significant about understanding today's passage. That is, it's easy to forget what a blessing it is to be able to say something as simple and common as was the very first words of today's service. It is good to see you. For seeing people, physically seeing, It's virtually impossible to imagine what it would be like to live an entire life in total darkness. I was at a graduation uh, ceremony Friday night, and there was a godly godly gentleman there who was born blind. He's now in his mid-50s. It's virtually impossible for seeing people to imagine what it would be like to live an entire life in total darkness, but that is the spiritual experience of most humans on planet Earth. No light, no sight of God, maybe gobs of religious language, maybe Bible verses, maybe the name Jesus, but no spiritual light. That's what today's passage is about. John 8, we'll pick up our reading in verse 12. Tune your ear to hear the voice of God. Then Jesus, verse 12, spoke again to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me verse 19 so they were saying to him where is your father jesus answered you know neither me nor my father if you knew me you would know my father also these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him for his hour had not yet come join me again as we ask for god's help in understanding and applying this passage. Father in heaven, would you please show us right now the light of Christ and cause us to do verse 12, to follow Jesus. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Tommy mentioned at the beginning of the service that we're skipping verses 1-11. We're doing a series in the Gospel of John. We've made our way now to chapter 8. We've preached our best Effort uh, on every passage, definitely haven't touched in, you know, exhaustive form any of the verses, and in some verses we haven't laid heavy emphasis on. We're going to lay almost no emphasis on verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. Why would we skip that? Well, first, let me just say to you, it's highly likely that the account in those verses happened. Almost no one who studies their Bible carefully doubts if something like that happened. It's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember, Jesus draws in the sand and says to the people, he who has uh, no sin, let him cast the first stone and, and, and they all leave. It's that passage. And while it's highly likely that the account happened, it's almost certain that John did not write it when he wrote the Gospel of John. Now, I don't want that to bother you too much. Let me try to help you just briefly with that conundrum if you're a Bible person. You're like ah. My pastor just said a paragraph in my Bible doesn't belong there. How can I trust any paragraph? How can I know? Well, you don't have to be rattled. The message contained in verses 1 through 11 is a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ, his compassion, his grace for the most guilty. We're the adulteresses. We're all spiritually loose. God has mercy on us. He knows our hearts. He knows our sin. It's a beautiful picture of the compassion and grace of Christ for the guilty, suffering sinners who are shamed by the world. And It's also a great picture of Christ's rebuke of people who are full of spiritual pride. You think you're better than somebody, a little more squeaky clean, and therefore God likes you a little better than the dirty person. While it's likely that this account or something very similar to it happened, At some point in Jesus' ministry, we're not suggesting it didn't happen. John even concludes this gospel by writing, if we recorded everything Jesus said and all the signs he did and all his teaching, John, using a little bit of hyperbole, says the the world itself wouldn't be able to contain the books. But he says, I carefully selected certain things to include because I have a purpose. I have an agenda an open secret. I'm trying to do something to you. And John said, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, which is why we call our series Believe and Live. John said that's why he picked certain things in Jesus's life and ministry and included them. Well, what about this passage? There are good reasons for concluding that it was not original to John. Let me just summarize for you three of those. One When this passage does finally show up in some of the manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, and there are many, like to the tune of 25,000, there are lots. When this passage finally shows up in the later New Testament manuscripts, it doesn't always appear in the same place in John's Gospel. Sometimes it's here in chapter 8. Sometimes it's in chapter 7. Sometimes it's in chapter 21. Number two. Sometimes in those later manuscripts where it does appear, a variation of this account does not even appear in John's gospel. Rather, it shows up in Luke after chapter 21, verse 38. So it seems like oral tradition said, hey, this happened. It's super important. It helps us see something about the heart of Christ. Let's just remind everybody. But third, and really most convincingly, one reason we're not suggesting it's not an accurate account, we're asking, did John write it under inspiration? Most convincingly, it does not appear in any of the earliest manuscripts we have. None of them. The Bible is the most scrutinized book in the history of the world. You can trust your Bible. It is important for you to have a solid translation of the Bible. It, wasn't written, it was not written in English, written in Hebrew and Greek, and you need a solid translation of those manuscripts so that you can think God's thoughts after him. You get a loosey-goosey translation, you may understand the big picture, but you won't understand the details. Christians believe that God has graciously preserved his word. And we also know that some of the brightest minds in the history of the world, both Christians and non-Christians, have poured over thousands of manuscripts that we do have in the New Testament. And where there are any questions of accuracy, authenticity, originality there is zero dispute over doctrine so even in the variants we have zero Christian doctrine changes based on those potential variants put simply we know we have a reliable bible we don't have to wonder if we have a solid rule for faith and practice can we know what God expects of us yes We do have solid reason to trust the translations that we have in our lap today. So in summary, verses one through 11 does not appear in any of the most ancient copies of John we have. In fact, you're gonna search in vain for one sermon, one commentary, one comment on this passage from any of the writings of the early church fathers. None of them preach verses one through 11. They didn't have access to it. They go straight from 752, to 812, which is what we're doing today, and our focus is on the point. Jesus is the light of the world. What we're gonna see today is simply this. Jesus shows God he's the light of the world, and Jesus knows God. He knows his Father. He He knows where he came from, he knows where he's going, and if you knew Jesus, you would know his Father also. He shows God, he knows God. Number one, verse 12, Jesus is the light of the world. Verse 12 says, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's two things that I wanna say about this verse. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 20 so that you can see the setting. Where was Jesus when he says this? Well, we're told that he was in the treasury. He was teaching in the temple. Well, when you hear the word treasury, you should think something money. He's in the place where the treasury was. Archie Sproul said, the treasury of the temple was a place where there were 13 receptacles. You would throw in your coins, your offering, each shaped in the form of a trumpet, the shofar, a ram's horn, and each was dedicated to a different need or concern. So this is where Jesus is, and I want you to see it in your mind's eye. Imagine in this room, There's 13 different huge trumpet-shaped receptacles, and this one is for ladies who've gone through childbirth since last year's Feast of Tabernacle, and so they give offering for purification. It's part of God's law. This one is dedicated to purchasing wood for the altar, for the sacrifice. That one's for you to buy two pigeons and you put money in there because that's a sacrifice God required of you if you're going to attend the Feast of Tabernacles, so on and so forth. We could go. There were some for general offering. There were some for other means, but there's 13 of them. Can you see them in your mind's eye? In between those, there's a huge cauldron, like the Olympic cauldron, not the torch that the guy runs around the world with and passes to the next guy, the cauldron that they finally light, and boom, it illuminates the Olympic Stadium. So there's torches all over the place, and there's trumpet-shaped offering boxes all over the place. Can you see it? That's where Jesus is. In addition to all those torches, the Mishnah, that's the oral tradition of the Jews. They said 70 AD, the temple got destroyed, a bunch of the scrolls got destroyed, and so the the priests started telling each other, oral tradition, the, the, the history of Israel. And in the Mishnah, first, second century... They say there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the great candles. So the temple is on fire. It's a huge blazing inferno of light. You can see it from miles around because Jerusalem's up on a hill. And all the courtyards of all the houses have a light in them. Jerusalem is lit up. There, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Verse 12. So what does this mean? Let your eyes just stay there on verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does this mean? You know the setting now. Verse 20 tells you when he said it, where he was, kind of what it looked like. What does it mean? The people who stood around knew exactly what Jesus meant. Look, you have no excuses and neither do I that Jesus wasn't clear. We can't say, well, I don't quite get it. Yes, you do. If you listen to this sermon and leave unbelieving, it's willful ignorance at this point. You do know, and they knew as well. John opened his gospel with this same theme. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1.4. John 1.9, right at the beginning of the gospel, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. You do see. And these people saw, but they didn't want to see. They didn't want to believe. It was willful ignorance. In the chapter right after the one we're dealing with, we're in chapter 8, we're going to find soon, in chapter 9, verse verse 5, Jesus says, while I am in the world, John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. You do see. So the people would have known what Jesus is doing in verse 12 of chapter 8. But I want your eyes to fall on two words. This personal pronoun and that verb, I am. They knew what he was saying and they knew what he was saying. You want you a big Bible vocabulary word for today? That's the tetragrammaton. That's the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H. That's the divine name, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. Jesus is clearly hearkening back to Exodus 3 when the God of the universe talked to a little barefoot man named Moses and said, I am who I am. John 3, 14. Jesus is saying, do you want to know God? I am the light of the world. This is a powerful theme in the Old Testament. When God promised to send a Messiah, he oftentimes did it this way. I will give you a light. Listen to Isaiah 42, six. Speaking of the Messiah, God the Father says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nation. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, they know he's talking about what Isaiah meant. Or Isaiah 49, 6. God says to the Savior, is it too small, small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will make you a light to the nations. Well, here's Jesus in the treasury with people from all the surrounding nations. They came in town for the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. It ended the day before. There's gobs of people around. They're finally making their offering in the treasury. They need to have a sacrifice before they go back home until next year. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the nations. I'm the light of the world. He's the living water in the previous chapter that they celebrated for a week at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's the divine light that illumines every soul in the whole world who comes to him for forgiveness of your sins, which is probably why they put verses 1 through 11 right before that. You can have forgiveness. It doesn't matter how sinful you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Stop making excuses. Oh, you don't know how bad I am, preacher. I do know how bad I am. God can have mercy on you. He's the light that illumines every soul. Jesus has forgiveness and salvation plenty for you. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. It's the point he's talking about when he says, I'm the light of the world. But notice the effect of the light. He who believes in me, he who follows me, will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. You know the inference of that, you know what that means. If you don't follow him, you're a blind person. Spiritually, you're blind. You don't see what you think you see. And Jesus said, when the blind lead the blind, everybody falls into a pit. If you're without Christ, here at Grace Church, we love you enough to tell you, you are without light. You don't see what you think you see if you don't have Christ. Remember, that's what we've been seeing in the previous chapter. For those who've been here for our sermon series, in chapter 7, We were at this big Feast of Tabernacles, thousands of people are there. Jesus stands up when the priest is pouring the water out of the golden pitcher and he says, I'm the living water. Here there's cauldrons of fire all over the place, lighting it up so much that you could see it from any part of Israel. Jerusalem up on here, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Remember the background of this feast? Why did they celebrate for a week? Why did they come from miles around? When's the last time you went to a week long party for Jesus? Why did they come? Because they were celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles that God gave food to Israel every single day in the desert for 40 years. He gave them manna and he gave them water out of a rock. He kept them alive. He was their basic sustenance. And God is saying, I'm your most basic need. So Jesus says, that's me. I'm the living water. And so now when they're celebrating God's provision for 40 years of manna and water, At a feast of tabernacles, do you now know why he said, in this moment, I'm the light of the world? Why didn't he say it a week later or a week before? Why didn't he say it a year later? Why did he say it right here? He said it right here because he knows how to commandeer a moment. For a whole week, they've been remembering God's faithfulness to Israel during their wilderness wanderings. How did they know where to go? There was a gigantic tornado of cloud and fire in front of them for 40 years. That's how they knew where to go. It was a lightning-filled cloud by day, a huge light right there, a pillar of fire at nighttime, a a, a Category 4 tornado, boom, right in front of them every single day. There was a huge light leading them. Now do you hear Jesus? I'm the light of the world. Remember Israel followed the light for 40 years? Follow me and you won't have any darkness. You'll know exactly where to go. You'll know how to live to please God. You'll know what I want for you. If you don't follow me, you're going into pitch blackness. You're going into total darkness. You're going to be wandering into the pit of hell. I'm the light of life. What do people get who follow Jesus? Do you see verse 12? The light of life life. If you don't follow Jesus, you're not only blind, you're dead. He's the light of life. You have to have Christ. I'm not talking about a prayer you prayed 20 years ago. I'm talking about the source of your life. To live is Christ. Philippians 121, we know that it was the Lord Jesus who was being spoken of in the first verses of the Bible. It's not God of the Old Testament, Jesus in the new. We know it was Jesus in the first verses of the Bible because when the Bible opens with these words, the third verse of the Bible, God said, let there be light and there was light. We know that was Jesus because John tells us so in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. The Lord Jesus did. God the Father working through him. The power of the Holy Spirit. But it was God the Son who is the creator. And we're told over and over again things like this. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. If you follow him. If you follow him. No matter what wilderness you're in. No matter what you lack. If you follow him you get the light of life. If you turn your back on him, you can't see anything. It's worse than blindness. Jesus is the one that the psalmist was rejoicing in a thousand years before Jesus was born. When the psalmist wrote in chapter 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus is the one that Isaiah was prophesying about 700 years before Jesus was born. The people who walk in darkness, Isaiah said, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Hello, it's Jesus. Three disciples were so honored by Christ to be invited up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw his glory. And this is what Matthew says about that. Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. When you go outside this afternoon, if the clouds break, I want you to just stare at the sun for about two seconds. Jesus shone brighter than that. He's the light of the world. That's why I was prayed earlier. The little open prayer time we had, one of the brothers obviously was meditating on today's sermon text because he prayed 2 Corinthians 4. If you don't see the light in Christ, it's not because he's not shining. It's because you are B-L-I-N-D. You're blind. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Remember when God created the world, let there be light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's the light of the world. If you follow him, no darkness, the light of life. The author of Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the outshining Old translations say he's the effulgence, he's, he's all of God beaming out to you. Jesus would say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And guess where we're headed if we have Christ, the light of life. We're headed to Revelation twenty-one twenty-three. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp, is the lamb. Jesus brightens heaven. There's no nighttime in heaven because Jesus is there in all of his glory. Have you seen the light that you must have in Jesus to not only not be blind, but also to not be dead? Can you personally say Psalm 27 one, and I mean this, from, from the depth of my soul and with a heart full of prayer, can you sing the song of Psalm 27.1? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Well, that was our main point. Jesus shows us God, but he also is the only one who exhaustively knows God. And through the Holy Spirit, we come to know the same God through Jesus. Look at verses 13 to 18. We'll look at it in three Parts. Jesus is not only the light of the world, he's also the Lord of the universe. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus knows his nature, and so should you. When the Pharisees said in verse 13, You're testifying about yourself, your testimony is not true. Jesus said, Even if I do testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You see, the people wanted to dismiss Jesus. Everybody's looking for a reason not to believe. But as I said earlier, it's willful ignorance. It's eyes wide open blindness. They dismissed Jesus' claims because they thought that he was self-promoting, that he presumed to testify about himself. Your testimony isn't true because you're just talking about yourself. Their law forbade a man who was on trial from personally testifying alone and being exonerated. Exonerated. But long before their law existed, Jesus wanted them to know something. Long before they were created, long before their law was ever in need, Jesus enjoyed eternity in glory. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. You see, he knows his nature, and so should you. He knows his nature, and so should you. He's emphasizing his transcendence. The best thought you've ever had about God does not come close to the totality of who he is. He's not you infinitely better. He's in a category all by himself. He exists outside this little invention called time and space. He's eternal. He's outside of space. He's outside of time. The people were questioning him and they had no idea who he is. Their testimony about themselves, of course, could not stand under trial because like you, like me, we're all liars and so were they. They needed witnesses to validate their claims. Otherwise, their testimony could not be corroborated in court and accepted as true. But Jesus is not a liar. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. Jesus is saying, I don't need another testimony because there's not one shred of truthlessness in me he's saying i'm the eternal god i know that i've existed from forever i know where i came from i entered this space-time continuum which i created and i'm going back to my father i know where i'm going but you don't know jesus knows his nature and so should you but verses 15 and 16 jesus knows his assignment and so should you He's the light of the world, he shows God, but he also knows God and and he knows his assignment. And so should you. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, verse 15 and 16, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Do you see that Jesus knows his assignment? But he's telling these people, you should know his assignment too. That's your job. Your job is to know his job. These people were sinfully prejudicial. Verse 15 says, they judge according to the flesh. It's sarks, it's outward. They only looked at what was on the outside. They were sinfully prejudicial. Prejudgment is the lot of the human existence. It's impossible for you not to have presuppositions. We read our Bibles with them. We need God to remove many of them. We need God to help us see clearly what is there, not read in, but take from out, not eisegete, but exegete. We're all sinfully tempted to be prejudiced. And these people were exactly that. They were sinfully prejudicial. They judge, verse 15, according to the flesh. They only look at the outside. And they categorize people based on outward appearance. Jesus is not saying he will never judge. He is saying he doesn't judge that way. His judgment is not based on outward appearance. It's what God said in Samuel. He looks at your heart. Jesus had already said two chapters earlier, three chapters earlier, John 5, not even the father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the son. He's not saying he won't judge. He's just saying he's not going to judge the way they do it We're told in chapter three of the same gospel, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now listen to the themes of light and judgment that are coming. Jesus said, he who believes in him, believes in me, is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment. Light came into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Why do people not come to the light? Well, Jesus said something pretty sobering. They don't come to the light because they hate it. People don't get close to Jesus for one main reason. They know he's going to show them all their filth. The closer you get to the blinding light of his holiness, the more of your wretchedness you'll see. But he doesn't bring you into the light to condemn you. He brings you into the light to save you. You try to hide from him who you are, you're doubly dead. He already knows who you are more than you do. Jesus is clear in verse 16. There is going to be a time coming when he'll judge everybody in perfect equity, without partiality, without sinful prejudice. He's not looking at the flesh. He's looking at your heart. He's going to judge you in perfect harmony with the Father. He knows his assignment, and so should you. Third, in verses 17 and 18, under Jesus' knowledge of God, the fact that he's the Lord of the universe, verse 17 and 18, he knows his Father and so should you. So he knows his nature, he knows his job, and he knows his Father. He shows God and he knows God. Verse 17, your law. Isn't that interesting? Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself and the father who sent me testifies about me. Your law, see back in Deuteronomy 19, a single witness could not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he had committed. Deuteronomy 19 says you have to have two or three witnesses for a matter to be confirmed. And Jesus is explaining, I'm actually in compliance with that law. I do have another witness. The God of the universe, my father. The people who heard Jesus didn 't like this too much, and today people still don't like it. People want to say, "Man, there's a big world out there, there's a lot of religions. God's a God of love. surely everybody's going to make it to God if they're just devout to the understanding of God they have, not true. Jesus is the one who said, "If you, if you don't like it, your argument's not with Jordan, it's with Jesus. Jesus." Is the one who made himself, John 5.19, equal with God, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. That's what's happening here in chapter 8. Jesus knows his father, and so should you. He knows his nature. He's from eternity. He's going to eternity, but he came into time to take you with him. He knows his job. He's not judging on his first coming, but he absolutely will on his second coming. And he knows your heart. He's not judging on your outward. He's judging on your heart. Have you trusted him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you received his atoning death as the only ground upon which God will accept a guilty sinner like us? Have you embraced his risen victory? Have you clung to the risen Jesus from the grave, now ascended, soon returning, as the only reason God should accept you forever. He is going to judge, but he also knows his father. Verse 17 and 18. We'll turn now to verse 19, where Jesus makes clear, not only does he show God light of the world, not only does he know God, verses 13 to 18, but he's the only access we have to God. Verse 19. When the people ask, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What he's saying is, I'm the only way. I'm the lone access to God. One aspect of verse 19 that I just want to drill in on, Jesus knows your heart and so should you. You see, he knows his nature. He knows his job. He knows his father. But verse 19 is saying he knows your heart you don't know me you do not know my father if you knew me it's a package deal you'd know my father also this verse may have been an attempt to shame jesus for being conceived out of wedlock where is your father maybe they knew his backstory but jesus wanted them to know that while they might think he's an unreliable testimony giving witness to himself, or comes from a sketchy background in his family tree, Jesus wanted them to know that he knows that they're unregenerate because they don't have faith. Do you you guys, I know that you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe this. At least I want to believe that you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe this. Do you know we're not playing games here? Many of us have been exposed to the greatest news in the universe all of our life. Tommy just prayed for people in the Middle East who've never heard the name Jesus. They're gonna perish into a Christless eternity. And we come every week, sometimes just twiddle our thumbs and let's get out of here and repeat next time. Wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. No, Jesus knows your heart. He said in chapter five, the father who sent me, he has testified about me. You've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. He tells these people, you don't know God. Verse 19 Remind me where they were at. Not, not technically, but by way of application, they were at church. They were in the treasury. They were at the temple. They came from miles around to be at a week-long feast to celebrate God, and Jesus is telling every last one of them, you're blind, you're dead, and you don't know God. It should cause us to examine our heart, but I'm saying from verse 19, Jesus is the only way you can know him, the only, only, only way you can know God If you knew me, you would know my father. Do you know that it was Jesus who thanked God? He wasn't talking to me or you. He was praying to his father and he said in Matthew 11, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, it was pleasing in your sight to do it this way. And then he went on to say in Matthew 11:27, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He's the lone access to God. And finally, not only does he know your heart and so should you, finally, verse 20, He is the long-awaited Messiah. Do, Do you see this astonishing conundrum? Jesus is just out here publicly teaching in the temple. Verse 20, as he taught in the temple. He's standing on the platform of the treasury. It's three times the size of this gymnasium. There's fireballs everywhere. They can see him. He's not hiding. He's in open sight, totally public, Three times in the previous chapter, they tried to arrest him. Three times in that temple. He's not hiding. Here they are again in verse 20. No one seized him, which presupposes they wanted to do that. Nobody touched him. Nobody laid hands on him. He's out in the open. Why didn't they arrest him? Thank you, John. Because his hour had not yet come. Do you see this? Public prophet announcing the truth of God, and nobody can stop him. Now, if I was over there preaching Jesus, they'd probably stone me to death in a nanosecond. Why couldn't they seize him? Because of God's unassailable sovereignty over the timing of Jesus's death. Here's Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophet's promise, the people who were sitting in darkness, Isaiah wrote, saw a great light, in those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. That's what's happening right here in this passage. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and God's unassailable sovereignty saw to it that nobody laid a hand on him until God was finished with him. They couldn't seize him. But here's where we close I've told those of you who've been along for our journey that we're six months away from Jesus dying on a cross. It's about October of the year before he died, the following spring, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles now. Six months later, he's going to be at the Feast of Passover and they are going to kill him. They are going to seize him. They're going to arrest him, or better yet, he's going to arrest them in a garden. About 600 soldiers come to get him. They all fall on their back. He tells them who gets to stay, who gets to go. He's in total control. He goes with them. They don't seize him. He seizes them. Nobody took his life. John 10, we're about to get there in our sermon series. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down on his own initiative. He's in total control. He said he could have snapped his fingers and 12,000 angels would have come and destroyed everybody in sight. I mind you, one angel killed 186,000 people in one night in the Old Testament. Jesus is in total control. You're not taking his life from him. Nobody seized him. Thank you, John, because his hour had not yet come. You just follow that little word in John's gospel, H-O-U-R, hour, 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 hour. He's talking about the cross. Now the hour has come, Jesus said in chapter 12. What hour? When six months after this moment in the treasury with these balls of fire everywhere and Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. If you don't have my light, you don't know God. Six months later, overlooking this very same temple, they're going to arrest him. They're going to drag him into this same temple. There are going to be people making up false accusations about him left and right. Their testimonies don't even match. And isn't it ironic they're saying you testify about yourself to your testimony isn't true. Six months later, these same people and their friends are going to be standing up saying this and that and that and that. And none of them agree with each other. They're gonna take his arms and stretch his back out real good and tie him around a telephone pole and get him all nice and stretched out. And they're gonna beat the mess out of him with the cat of nine tails. Blood's gonna splatter everywhere. He's gonna be in prison, stay all night in a dungeon in this very same temple court. They're gonna wake him up the next morning just so they can mock him real good, press crown of thorns on his head, put a purple robe on his back, rip it off again. They're gonna make him march up Golgotha with a big beam on his shoulders. They're going to press another African man into service because he was too fatigued to keep carrying his cross after they had beat him so badly. And then they're going to do what we just read in Mark's gospel. If you've been walking through your small group study, they crucified him. His hour was about to come. After six hours of being suspended between earth and heaven on a Roman cross with people wagging their heads and mocking him and insulting him and telling him, ha, 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 if you're God, why don't you just come down and save yourself? Then I'll believe in you. He wasn't there for them to believe. He was there because he was gonna mete out to them righteous judgment because they would not believe in the very obvious light that he is. After six hours on that cross, he would willingly, voluntarily, in total control, yield himself to God give up his spirit they didn't kill him he gave his life and God accepted that sacrifice because after his cadaver was in a borrowed tomb for three days God snatched him back to life he was raised from the dead and if you don't believe that it's because you don't want to 500 people, the Bible tells us, saw him after he raised from the dead. He ate meals with people. He showed up in crowded rooms with people. He talked constantly. He ascended from a hill right outside of this temple in Jerusalem with people watching him. If you don't want to believe, you don't want to believe. And he's going to appear again. And when he comes, it's not going to be Can you see this Old Testament connection? I'm the light of the world. I'm the one Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one who said in the beginning, let there be light. It's not gonna be trying to persuade you anymore. When he comes again, this isn't fear mongering, hellfire brimstone preaching. This is bone jarring reality from a brokenhearted preacher who doesn't want you to perish. He's coming as the judge. He's gonna separate believers and unbelievers. And those who know and trust him, love him, live for him, embrace him, believe upon him, thrust their helpless soul into the arms of an almighty redeemer. They're gonna reign forever with this Jesus. And what all of you are gonna do about Eight or ten hours from now, some of you night owls, it may be longer than that. You can go to sleep tonight, but you know what's going to happen in glory? No nighttime. No sleep. No darkness. Do you want to know why? Because the lamp is the lamb. And no sermons are going to be needed in heaven to know that Jesus is the light of the world. Why did John write this? Why did he write it? These things have been written, John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you will have life in his name. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that everybody who thinks they're a Christian, that it will repent from their repentance and playing games with you and trust the risen Jesus. I pray that all who've never professed faith in Christ, heard about him thousands of times maybe, unlike those people on the other side of the planet for whom we prayed, that somebody would go tell them. We got a lot of people in our day, and I was one of them, who heard about Jesus week after week after week and never gave him my life. There's probably some people like that here today, oh God, oh God, oh God, would you open their heart to believe like you did Lydia, the book of Acts, and... Lord, for all of us who do truly know him, you know what I cut out of my sermon here on the fly, so I'm going to pray this one. Oh God, you said if we would follow Jesus, you would make us fishers of men. So I pray that all of us who have seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that we would shine the light of Christ by telling our lost friends and family and acquaintances where beggars can find bread, where thirsty people can find water, and where blind people can find light. God, would you use us to share the love of Jesus with those around us and bring others into the light? We pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.